welcome to History Factory Plugged In, the podcast at the nexus of business and history. I'm Jason Dressel, and happy fall, or as we say down here in Virginia, happy fall, y'all. October is here, and we're going to talk about some of the business milestones from October history, one of which is this mystery company. Fifteen years ago, this company was launched, and here's a hint. In a study by UC Berkeley economists, a half-star rating increase translates into a 19% greater likelihood that a restaurant's seats will be full during peak dining times. Conversely, according to a Harvard Business School study, a one-star decrease in a restaurant's overall rating could lead to a 5% loss in revenue. We'll share more about this mystery company towards the end of the episode. We're also going to chat with our friend, Fernando Ariola, the VP of Brand and Fan Development for the Chicago Bears. We're also going to talk with Bruce Weindrick, the big chief, about some of the most recent news, including the collapses of Thomas Cook and Adam Newman and WeWork. Speaking of collapses, October is the 90th anniversary of Black Monday and the five-day disaster that kicked off America's 12-year Great Depression. But on to some more positive things. October is also uh, the anniversary month of the first iPod launched by Apple back in 2001. Uh, The rise of Napster, remember Napster, and uh, illegal music downloads uh, gave insight to the tech industry that MP3 files were going to be the future of music. And at that time, uh, MP3 players were, in the words of Steve Jobs, uh, crap or probably some more colorful language. And so uh, Apple uh, worked with a guy named Tony Fidel, who is uh, attributed to be the founder of the iPod, who was an amateur DJ and had come up with the idea of a better MP3 player because he was tired of carrying around his bulky collection of CDs to gigs. And so anyway, he was brought into Apple uh, to develop the iPod, Uh, The problem was that with the recent tech crash looming in everyone's minds, uh, he had just six months to deliver a product to the market or else the project was going to be shut down. Uh, So Fidel and his team uh, got going, and in a six six grueling months, uh, the iPod came to be, uh, which then, of course, led later to the iPhone and the iPad. And uh, here we are in the screen time era and uh, human interaction has never been the same. Uh, October also gives us uh, the anniversary of the Walt Disney World Resort, which opened in Orlando, Florida in 1971 on a uh, big plot of land that was a mixture of swamp and orange groves, uh, what started as a small resort called the Florida Project, Uh, with mainly the Magic Kingdom, has now expanded to cover over 12,000 acres, uh, four theme parks, two water parks, 27 themed resort hotels, uh, nine nine Disney hotels, uh, tons of golf courses, and entertainment venues. Uh, It's introduced a monorail. There's, of course, the Polynesian Village Resort, and eventually uh, Space Mountain. Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, I did not know this, that the Polynesian Hotel was where, in 1974, John Lennon signed the document in 1974, effectively ending the Beatles. Uh, So I guess you could say the Magical Mystery Tour ended at the Magic Kingdom. Uh, What was John Lennon doing at Disney, by the way? That doesn't seem to fit. But anyway... Uh, So today, uh, Walt Disney World is the most visited vacation resort in the world, with average annual attendance of more than 52 million people. And if you're planning your wedding, uh, believe it or not, you can rent the entire Magic Kingdom, after hours of course, for around $200,000. And I will say as a side rant, I I don't understand why you would want to get married at Disney. I mean, you've got kids in your future, unless it's a second marriage and you've already got, you know, kids in the mix, you know, save Disney for when the kids come along. No reason to be doing a wedding or a honeymoon at Disney. Um, but that's my, my own bias. I know plenty of people disagree with me on that, but, uh, I don't know my advice, 
go to Hawaii, save uh, save the Magic Kingdom, save Disney for when you got the kids. Uh, there's plenty of time. Speaking of Disney, ABC also got its start in October back in 1943. Uh, Part of ABC's first partnership with Disney was ABC's investment in Disneyland in California when it opened in the 1950s. Uh, ABC produced a special program called Dateline Disneyland, uh, which, I don't know, sounds like a tender-themed Disney program or a Disney news program. Uh, both are weird. Uh, but anyway... Uh, ironic, though, that ABC was the investor in Disney back then, and of course now the tables turned with Disney now owning the network. Uh, but ABC was the channel that broadcast the original uh, Walt Disney TV series that started in October of 1954. <laughs> October also marks uh, 111 years since Ford launched the Ford Model T. The car largely attributed for making uh, automobiles accessible and affordable to the middle class. Uh, you could buy a 10 Lizzie Model T for about 825 bucks, which is equivalent to about $22,000 today, uh, which kind of makes sense. You could probably get a Ford Fiesta or a Ford Focus for something in that price range. Um, but the Ford Model T uh, was really the, uh, the product that made Ford a household name beginning back in 1908. And uh, also, October gives us the birth of PBS. Uh, PBS began back in 1970, so happy 49 to PBS, uh, which has given us Mr. Rogers and uh, Sesame Street and uh, Downton Abbey. Uh, so congratulations to PBS. Of course, PBS also gave us uh, Barney and, and Teletubbies, uh, so you got to, I guess, take the uh, take the good with the bad. Uh, anyway, um, let's uh, let's move on to uh, my conversation with our friend Fernando Ariola, VP of Fan and Brand Development for the Chicago Bears, and let's tune in to hear more about the Bears 100. Hello, Fernando. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? Doing great. Congratulations on uh, Bears 100 and uh, the uh, the big win in D.C. Uh, we're having this conversation just a few weeks after, uh, or a few days, I should say, after uh, the big win in, in D.C., so congratulations on, uh, on the win. Uh, certainly this year, no one wants to lose to the Redskins. Exactly. No, that was, that was a great game, uh, all, all facets of the, of the team, and it's good to see things play out that way and, and tee things up for uh, for this Sunday uh, with the Vikings coming to town. So we're excited about it. Yep, the NFC North is uh, is fierce this year. So you've got uh, you've got your hands uh, cut out for you. You got a lot, a lot of great teams in the NFC North. It looks like one of the strongest divisions for sure. Yeah, it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see how long everyone has a winning schedule. But um, I like I think the competition you know kind of raises the game and keeps things interesting. And uh, we'll see how it plays out. Yep, indeed. And uh, I have to say, on a personal note, when I was growing up uh, in North Carolina, I was uh, not a huge uh, NFL fan um, until I was maybe in fifth or sixth grade. And that actually coincided with the 85 Bears. And I'm sure, like a lot of kids around the country, I sort of jumped onto the uh, the Super Bowl shuffle bandwagon and became a big Bears fan. Uh, for better or worse, I think my first uh, I, I was grow, I, growing up in North Carolina I was a baseball and basketball fan, and I read a lot of you know baseball and basketball history books. Being a history buff. And uh, I don't know if this is a moment of pride uh, or, or a moment of embarrassment, but I think my first football history book I read was Jim McMahon's autobiography, um, which in hindsight, I'm not sure if that was, you know, necessarily, you know, Pulitzer quality, but it was certainly an entertaining <laughs> read uh, for an 11 or 12 year old or whatever I was, um, <laughs> exactly. but I became, but I, but I became a, a Bears fan and, uh, and I've always kind of had an affinity um, but in, in um, preparing for this, I, one thing I didn't realize was that the Bears are actually the, I think, the all-time winningest uh, NFL franchise. Is that correct? Um, I do believe that's true. Yeah, so it's good news. Yeah. And, uh, lot, like winningest, Hall of Famers, where there's a lot of, a lot of uh, milestones that we have um, that we're extremely proud of. 
and definitely kind of fold into the legacy of this place. Um, our, our challenge is to keep that going now for the next 100 years and, and continue to, uh, to win and, uh, and have colorful characters like uh, Jim McMahon because that definitely helps things out as well. Yes, exactly. And, and of course, that, that success is a combination of consistency and longevity. Um, so, uh, so the Bears uh, are, are, are celebrating uh, NFL's uh, – well, they're celebrating their own 100 this year as well as, of course, uh, the NFL 100. And uh, we had Pete Abitante on uh, a couple of weeks ago to talk a little bit, a bit about uh, what the NFL is doing this year with the 100th. Um, but we'd love to hear uh, more from you, Fernando, on what the Bears are doing uh, there in Chicago and across uh, your, your fan footprint uh, to celebrate uh, Bears 100. Yeah, we're, do, we're doing quite a bit. Um, and it's funny, a lot of, a lot of the celebratory um, elements um, have, already, um, have already played out. It was interesting as we, as we kind of came at this thing, one of the things that um, we talked about a lot internally was, you know, when it's football season, the fans, you know, want to want to enjoy the football games. And um, every fan enjoys Bears football a little bit different, but that's mainly the focus. So a lot of the um, Bears 100 is, is what we're calling the, this year. A lot of the Bears 100 activity um, really happened in the spring and in the summer. And we're still doing things like throughout the season, um, every season or every game um, is honoring a decade from our past, and we're kind of pulling that through to the game. So, like this this weekend's game against the Vikings um, is uh, is celebrating the 1930s, and the Bears are actually wearing some throwback uniforms to the 1930s, which will be uh, they're uh, they're they're pretty cool uniforms. So that'll that'll be fun. But uh, a lot of the stuff we did happened over the spring and the summer, and um, it's, it's been a fantastic ride. We, we really focused on um, trying to get our, our players, whether they're current players or alums, closer to our fans because um, we really wanted to do something to celebrate the, the 100 with uh, things that would resonate with the fans. So we had a, a big party in early June. Um, it was celebra- we called it Celebration Weekend. It actually it turned out to be the largest gathering of Chicago Bears ever. Um, between all the alums who came and the, the entire current team came there, and there were uh, a lot of uh, you know kind of mashups is what I like to call them of uh, some of the uh, the former players and the current players, and chances for fans to have encounters with players, whether it was just getting an autograph or playing video games with our guys, or some kids could go to some mini monster clinics. Um, so that was a lot of fun. We did that out at Rosemont, um, the Rosemont Convention Center, um, and then. Uh, Another big thing that we, we did we, we did through the uh, through the summer, um, but it's actually every game um, we're honoring one of these groups was community all pros, and that really came from um, you know the Bears' legacy of giving back, going all the way back to you know George Hallis um, giving back you know to veterans after World War II and other charities around the Chicago area. We basically the community all pro platform was we let our fans nominate what causes they thought were, were biggest for Chicago. And each game now, we, we, we had that, that fan nomination process go, go in, um, in May and, and, uh, and the selection in June. And now every home game, we're recognizing one of those causes um, with, a, with a large financial donation as well as some advertising. And depending on the, the cause, having the Bears organization get involved with, with doing things with that organization. Um, so, the, so those are just a few things, but it's been uh, it's been a, a really good celebration through the year, and we're looking forward to, like I said, every game recognizing a decade, giving back to the community, and that kind of thing, um, and, and hopefully a, a really strong win loss record as well. Yeah, no doubt. What and, and as part of those uh, those decade throwback games, uh, what are some of the elements that you're you're doing to activate against that? So, what are some of the things that are happening um, this weekend as part of the uh, the 1930s uh, decade? Um, so, when fans go to the game, um, I think one of the I'll, I'll talk about the the funnest and and kind of a little bit whimsical um, element of it. So. When fans go to the game, any fan going to the game, we're giving away bobbleheads from whatever decade it is. So this doc decade, it's the 1930s. The, you know, the first 20,000 fans to go in the stadium will get a, a Bronco Nagurski um, bobblehead um, who's wearing the same uniform that the guys in the field will be wearing, which is, which is kind of interesting. Oh, that's cool. um, yeah. ha- and having, 
Yeah, and having fun with that, I mean, one of the things that we really wanted to do with Bears 100 overall is we, we really, and, and working with the History Factory and talking to Alan and Bruce and those guys, we really wanted to be um, as contemporary as possible because there was, just given how rich our history is, um, there's a little bit of a concern that, you know, we didn't want to turn this into a Ken Burns style, you know, black and white grainy documentary. And so if you can think of anything that says, you know, 180 degrees different from that, that same bobblehead that is seven inches tall that the fans will get, we have that same thing is seven feet tall. And um, as part of the 1930s game, um, that bobblehead, the Bronco Nagurski bobblehead, the seven foot tall one, went to um, Logan Square last weekend um, to the farmer's market, which interestingly was very close to where the Bears used to practice in the 30s. And so these bobbleheads are kind of popping up around town um, on a decade-by-decade basis. The the Saints game will be Walter Payton. I think the Chargers game is going to be Brian Urlacher. Um, but the, the the giant bobblehead will also be at the stadium to um, commemorate, you know, so fans can have photo ops and commemorate the decade. And then um, there's a lot of stuff on the video board, like there's a lot of historical facts that we'll be showing. There's um, historical videos that we show to the fans in the, st- in the stadium. Um, a lot of things that you'll see that, that you know, normally would have last year would have been um, a video board game that might have been associated with our current players will be associated with historic players um, and things along those lines. And then just ironically, the, the, the game this weekend is our alumni game. So even though, unfortunately, a lot of the guys, the, the, the players from the 30s are, are no longer with us, and we do have some alums coming back um, from, from some other decades as well. Um, it'll be a little bit different for every, for every uh, game. Uh, like for some of the, like when we had the 80s game, um, we had an 80s cover band come and do the halftime show, so kind of tying in some music from the era. Um, and things along those lines. So trying to trying to have fun and trying to do it in a contemporary way and not, not make it too much, um, you know, have fun games and fun events for fans to do um, to harken things back. Um, and, and you mentioned the, uh, the connection, obviously, of some of the things that you're doing to activate in the community, uh, which is obviously terrific. You know, we always talk about using these milestones to make sure you're doing something as part of, you know, really giving back to the community. And, of course, you know, the NFL and, and the Bears have all, always do great things like that. But I'm curious with respect to how you all have maybe used the anniversary um, as a platform to engage with other uh, partners, you know, sponsorship opportunities. Um, you know, how, how have you all used the anniversary, if at all, in that regard? Um, it's, it's played out a little bit differently um, with, with different sponsors, depending who the sponsor is. So the, the, the thing that really drives the train with um, partners and sponsors is, you know, the Bears have a big, desirable, and engaged fan base. We're, we're really fortunate to have that, um, and we, we don't take it lightly, and we're fortunate to be able to, you know, kind of partner with our partners on that. Um, so the, the biggest thing that Bears 100 has brought in terms of working with partners and sponsors is just more of that. Um, so more of engaging with our fan base. And, it, and it's come to life in two ways. Um, first, um, Bears 100 has allowed us to extend our relevance with fans to new times of year. Um, and it's kind of like what I said earlier in the, the, the call that um, during the football season, the fans are into watching the games. They're fully engaged with the, with the games. What Bears 100 has allowed us to do is kind of open up the spring and summer months um, and give sponsors opportunities during those months. So especially some of our sponsors who might, um, you know, have seasonal businesses that, you know, maybe the early summer is important for them. It gives us some uh, platforms to engage with those sponsors then. And then second of all was just the, the new opportunities, both with, you know, either content or events, which the sponsors could get involved with. Um, so like the celebration weekend that I talked about was a big one. Um, we, uh, we had a return to, De- to Decatur. Um, the Bears were originally the, De- the Decatur Staleys, and we had an event where we went back to Decatur and kind of celebrated with the community um, and the people um, in that city. And then we had some various content like uh, the top 100 Bears players, 100 years and 100 seconds, the all-time team, where sponsors could get involved with that. So a lot of different – so I'd say just a, a longer season and, and more ways that maybe aren't available in other years – and then one of the really cool things is just in, in talking with the different sponsors, some of them have expressed it in their own way. And so one of, one of the really cool things that we were just, we kind of had a couple 
um, sessions with with different different um, sponsors, Dr Pepper, Visa, um, United Airlines, um, and some some partners of that nature. And um, it's it's really cool. I don't know if you've been to Terminal One at uh, at O'Hare Airport um, in the last few yep. weeks. But they have a yep. B concourse B and, and a C concourse. Yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you got it. And it was so much fun to see uh, the United people. They rebranded B and all the Bs, which are usually kind of a, I don't know if it's a Helvetica font or whatever it is, but their usual font has completely changed to the Bears B and Bears colors um, for each gate. So like B10 looks like, you know, the Bears B10, and same thing with the C, obviously. So um, they've, they've just had some fun, fun with that, and, and the fans love it. They got, really got a kick out of it. And so, um, and, and it comes to life for, for some other partners in other ways, but um, things along those, uh, about, along those lines are, are things that we really think um, kind of are, are mutually beneficial for, obviously, the, the partner as well as for the Bears and the fans. Um, so having said that, I am curious, though, with respect to um, coordinating with the, uh, the league on the broader NFL 100, um, was there any coordination there that took place between you all and, and the NFL, uh, or was it really completely separate? It was highly coordinated. Um, uh, I guess the, the best way to start that off is our, um, our internal team here has had a, uh, just worked with the NFL closely in the past, and so luckily there was a, I don't know if I'd say it's a template, but I guess, I guess there was a cadence that, that people were familiar with um, internally. And one of the things as we, as we went into this uh, that people brought up was the NFL draft was in Chicago in 2015. And uh, at that time, um, a lot of people were concerned that, hey, the NFL is going to come in here and they have a lot of firepower and a lot of resources, and it's going to cannibalize the Bears draft efforts and all the things that we do during our draft and we're going to be drowned out and, and we'll be lost and all this. And the thing that surprised people with that was the exact opposite happened, that um, when the NFL draft came here, it amplified the Bears draft activities and there was more energy and participation and interest in, in the Bears draft activities than there ever was with the NFL um, involved. And so as we went into Bears 100, the, the internal team here was like, hey, we have this natural megaphone with the NFL celebrating their 100. Let's work closely together because it's going to make our, our, our um, efforts so much stronger. The, and so, so we've been working very, very closely with them the entire time. Um, even our, our Bears 100 logo is very similar to the NFL 100 logo, and the whole idea is like, hey, this will, this will naturally harken back to the Bears and that we're celebrating our centennial as well as the least celebrating their centennial. Um, and one of the things we talked about with that was just, just people know that we're celebrating our centennial. I know the, a couple years ago um, when we were getting ready for this, the NHL was celebrating their centennial. And the thing surprised us because yep. the Blackhawks are, you know, we're a big, big hockey town here and the Blackhawks have a high profile. When we started talking to fans, it was surprising to us how many fans didn't know that the NHL was celebrating their, their centennial until it was, you know, almost over. And so we really wanted to try to get in front of that and make sure that people, you know, knew that this was going on. And, and working with the NFL, obviously, has been really helpful. So we've, we've worked closely with them. Luckily, a lot of the, the platforms are similar. They're, they have a giving back platform, their Huddle for 100 that we participated in, which has been great. Um, their Fantennials were our celebration weekend. They're kind of linked there. Um, the content yeah. calendars were in sync. There's a lot of promotional kind of giveaways for fans that we could get involved with. The biggest one for sure, though, and the stuff that we just got so much good feedback from fans were, was the kickoff event in Grant Park um, for the home opener on September um, 5th. So usually, you know, that the, uh, the opening game is a Super Bowl champion playing, you know, hosting a game against, against uh, someone on their schedule. And there's an event at that city, and, and because it was the uh, Bears 100 and NFL 100, uh, we were able to collaborate with the league and make it happen here. Um, unfortunately, the results of the game um, didn't, didn't play out uh, yeah. the way that we would have liked. <laughs> but, um, but the good news is the, uh, the, 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 the actual, all the, everything that happened at Soldier Field was fantastic. Everything that happened at Grant Park was fantastic and kind of 
uh, working and collaborating with the NFL and having something that was was, was great for fans um, and 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 really made a made a big difference for us. Yeah, and it's curious. I was, I was curious to ask. You know, given obviously that longevity and tradition, how how have you all used sort of the the heritage of the Bears as part of that brand and fan experience um, year in and year out? What are the things that you've found has you know worked well in terms of using that history and heritage uh, as an asset with your fan base? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, so I'm speaking to you from Hallis Hall, and even though we've just gone through a big uh, redesign here, um, it, it's fascinating how much of this organization and, and how much it, you can feel it as you walk the halls here um, revolves around the history and the legacy of, of, um, of George Hallis and, and the family and Mrs. McCaskey and just everything that they brought together. So it is an, it's an interesting organization. Um, one of the things that, that we, 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 we do is we're like, hey, we can't live in the past. We have to be about the future, um, and the future is where everything's at. But at the same time, um, we can take that legacy and move it forward and, and use it as a, as a benefit. And so the way we've defined the brand is really, you know, it's, it's passion, toughness, and then um, what we call the wink or smart smile, and I'll, I'll kind of drill into that a little bit. But passion is really um, our, our, our players bring passion, our organization brings passion, and our fans bring passion. And, and when you think about it, because we're trying to characterize this, passion is a really interesting word. Um, and it can be, you know, you, you, can, you can be passionate when things are going well and you can be passionate when things, you know, aren't going, you know, there's some adversity there as well. Um, but I think part of, part of what we've noticed with our fan base and our, and our players and organization is it, the key thing about passion is you're not passionate unless you care. And if you do care, you bring it every day because it's important to you. So passion is one way this kind of that's come down through the, the, Bears, the Bears history and kind of who we are that we define our brand. And then um, I, I mentioned toughness. Um, so toughness is definitely a way that we, we think about the Bears brand. Um, and Bears football definitely has a legacy towards, that leans towards toughness when you think about it. Um, and so yep. you, when you think about like the NFL, it's like you, you know, people make jokes about the black and blue division and that kind of thing. But when you think about the Bears play, teams of the past, there's definitely this, this – this, uh, this history of, you know, Bear, successful Bears teams have always tended to have good defense. They've always tended to pound it out, and um, those are some of the elements. You know, a lot, lot, there's a lot of legacy in the running game and stuff like that, and so the toughness comes through. And then the last thing, which I, I think is interesting that you started off this, this conversation talking about Jim McMahon is um, what we call um, the wink um, or the smart smile, which is – there's there's something about our brand where there's a little bit of a sense of humor, which a lot of other sports teams can't really can't really characterize. But the the way I'll describe it to you is, one day I was I, I'd been working at the Bears for about six months, and I was on a, a business trip um, for the team, and I was walking through an airport in Orlando, and I was wearing a Bears um, a Bears polo, and this another traveler just walked by me, and he's like the Bears, and just kind of like gave me a little smile. like, And so I'm sure this guy thought I was a fan, but it's, it's amazing when you think about the Bears. And I think the wink yeah. to me, which is really interesting about this, is you go back to someone like Jim McMahon, and I think kind of like uh, Jim McMahon clearly had his own personality, but, but the, 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 you know, one of those personalities on our team right now is Tariq Cohen. Like, he, like Tariq Cohen, he's a very – He's a very engaging personality and definitely has a good sense of humor. And so there's like we have, we have a tradition of players who seem to kind of emerge up through that, which doesn't always happen in sports. And then you think about stuff like the Super Bowl shuffle, how many teams have some sort of thing like that. And then we talked – I just talked about the super fans a minute ago and the Bears. And so there's this kind of element where it's not self-effacing humor. It's kind of having a little bit of fun while you're going about your work, which I think – is really a cool part of the brand, and it's one of the things that really makes the, the Bears um, a, a, fun, a fun brand to work on. So, well, Fernando, this has been great. Uh, thanks so much for, uh, for sharing uh, your, uh, your perspective, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll look forward to seeing uh, uh, how, uh, how the games go this, uh, this week. Good luck with your, your plan in Minnesota this week, right? 
Play Minnesota, yeah. And in, in division, uh, division uh, rival, um, and people are amped up for it. It should be a great game. Yeah, well, and Green Bay uh, didn't get it done <laughs> last night, so that'll that'll help you guys out. So best of luck, uh, best of luck with the rest of the season on the field, and uh, congrats again on uh, on the hundredth season. And uh, we'll stay in touch. You bet. Thank you very much. So a couple of weeks ago, the Bears beat the dreadful Redskins, and I'll use that as a segue to transition to bringing on a recovering Redskins fan, uh, Bruce Weindrick. So let's listen into my conversation with the Big Chief about some of the big headlines from the last couple of weeks. Hello, Bruce. Happy October. Well, thank you, Jason. It, yeah, the, our, our, our two weeks of uh, autumn are finally here in Washington, D.C., yeah, let's try to enjoy it. Um, so uh, let's start with uh, a, a heritage brand that, that had kind of a, a rough run of it over the last couple of weeks. Uh, in some respects, the uh, the blockbuster video of global travel. Uh, what do you make of, uh, of Thomas Cook? Well, you know, it's such an interesting story. Uh, you know, literally a 178-year-old organization. And if, if it was tough for the company, imagine what it was like for the thousands of people who were stranded around uh, the world. Um, but Cook is such an interesting story. Um, talk about living by the sword and also dying by it. I mean, uh, you know, it's founded originally, and it corresponds exactly with the growth of railways uh, uh, in, in England. Uh, Thomas Cook, uh, uh, temperance type, puts together a tour for a group of uh, temperance uh, followers uh, to, to, to go to a temperance meeting. Um, the company grows over the years and grows uh, in two ways, really, not only uh, through transportation, but also an interesting sidelight, finance. How can people be confident that when they get to where they're going to get to, they, they have the safe and secure way to pay for it. Thomas Cook pretty much uh, um, is, is an innovator in early, early traveler's checks. Um, this becomes very important for the company. Uh, the company is a generational story. They go through a series of cooks. And, of course, if you look at all the various owners from the fact of the, from the 20s after the cooks sell it, you, you can see that underlying transportation and finance. So, they are uh, nationalized after the Second World War by the British government and lumped in with British Railway, part of the transportation uh, movement, as they're going through a lot of changes. Then, of course, the, the Brits sell it off, and who is the consortium? It's a consortium of travel and banks, because, of course, banks like this idea of traveler's checks. They then sell it again to another uh, consortium, a German bank, who, who want, again, access to the, 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 the traveler's check business. Uh, they sell off their travel agents. Of course, that becomes part of a technology story. People are now able to book travel online, so they sell off their travel agencies to American Express. So if you really look at where they end up, they themselves get into the transportation business through owning their own airline, which they then, of course, uh, merge with a couple other European low-cost airlines. The point being here is that Thomas Cook has been extremely agile in, in, in kind of responding to changes in technology, changes in travel, changes in finance. But it eventually all those things, if you think about it, kind of catch up to them. And here they are today, no longer able to be able to keep the, the, the various uh, plates spinning on the, on, the, on the various, and also the fact that they've been through so many owners. Ironically, the, the greatest victim isn't even going to be so much the, the, the individuals or the tours that they did. It's going to be the destinations. Um, if you follow Thomas Cook's history over that 178-year period, they open up countries like Italy to, to mass tourism. They open up countries in, 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 in Asia to mass tourism. Those are going to be the ultimate uh, uh, kind of uh, victims of the fall of, travel, uh, of, of Thomas Cook because they'll no longer have this very steady stream of, of tourism that Thomas Cook introduced. 
Interesting point. And it, it's also interesting when you look at the company that despite all of those different adaptations and how it transformed itself, what seemed to be a through line was the integrity of the brand and customer loyalty through all of that. And uh, in reading a little bit about it over the last couple of weeks, one of the things that's interesting is with all those different transformations that the company has had, at the end of the day, it really doesn't have a lot of tangible assets. It really is driven by a lot of brand value and customer loyalty. So, you know, it's not like it's now in a position where it's got, you know, real estate holdings through hotels or, you know, hard assets through owning airplanes. Uh, so there's just Absolutely, not a lot of Absolutely, and that's there. a really good point. But interestingly enough, then don't count the brand out. It's still a very viable brand but yeah. different, with different organizations who own it, for example, in Asia. So, so you're absolutely right. The brand itself uh, had the attributes uh, that, that and, and by the way, as part of travel, as part of people's memories, uh, they, and by the way, accessories. That's one of the early things they did very wisely. You can spot those Thomas Cook bags all around the world, and that was yeah. a very smart piece of branding, but you can always spot a British tourist because they're always carrying their little Thomas Cook bag under their arm. Yeah. So let's talk about another uh, company that, that's success thus far has largely been driven by, by uh, strength of brand and its evaluation that's also had a, a rough couple of weeks here. Uh, and that, of course, is WeWork. Uh, what, do you, uh, what do you make of, uh, of the, the complications and the ouster of the CEO over the last couple of weeks? Well, let's, let's, get, let's make one quick connection between Thomas Cook. Uh, if, if these various countries who are beneficiaries of mass tourism uh, were, were, are going to be hurt by the loss of Thomas Cook, <laughs> there's going to be a lot of real estate developers around the country who are, going to be, who are being hurt right now by the suffering that's going on in WeWorks. Um, look, there's a couple different through lines and stories going on here. Certainly the, the notion of their founder. Um, you know... <laughs> This is not a new story, and we've seen a lot of it in the last few years. You had Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos, uh, kind of a sole proprietor, highly charismatic. No one else could run the company. And, of course, uh, uh, Theranos ran itself into the ground. Also, by the way, uh, with a group of uh, directors who gave the woman the carte blanche. You take a look at uh, uh, Travis Kalanick at, uh, at uh, Uber. Same thing. Uh, it's interesting when you look at him uh, and Adam Nauman, the guy at, uh, at uh, WeWorks. But what's interesting about these guys, they were sole visionaries. They weren't surrounded by the naysayers. Look at, look at like Sergey Brin. Uh, and Larry Page. You had two at Google. And not only that, they then brought in Eric Schmidt to run that firm. Very interesting, very different. If you look at Reed Hoffman uh, at LinkedIn, he, he had what were, you know, they called them the PayPal Mafia, a group of individuals who ran those companies. I think that when you get yourself an individual who is a sole source operator, visionary of these organizations, you are going to run the risk uh, of, of this happening. The, the one other thing that I think is so interesting about WeWorks, it reminds me, of course, uh, to, to an earlier uh, collapse, and it was an organization called WebVan. In, in the 80s, WebVan grew very, very quickly with the funding of, uh, of its investors. Uh, they were going to be the, the, the grocery delivery service. They bought a lot of real estate. It was a real estate play as much as it was, and a technology play as much as anything. And then, of course, in the, in the 1990s, bubble, it burst, and that was the end of, of WebVan. What's interesting about both WeWorks and WebVan, while WebVan was growing and the darling uh, and the investors plumped a lot of money into them, there was a very quiet little company called Peapod that just didn't do the same, didn't have the same model. You didn't hear about them, and they to survive today. I think the interesting story of the WeWork, the moral of the WeWork story, is there are going to be other co-working organizations that we haven't heard so much about who have a little bit different model that don't have the, the, the excess of a visionary leader who very much may fill the void. It's not, it's not, it's not the fact that there's not a need for it. It's the fact that fueled by, by their, their founder's vision and hot money, uh, they just got themselves to the point where it just wasn't viable any longer. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned with Thomas Cook, the live by the sword, you die by the sword. And in some essence, that's the challenge of WeWork with their uh, – 
their leadership, it's been a little bit of, you know, live by the sword, die by the sword, because when you really sort of strip away a lot of the, uh, a lot of the kind of uh, uh, noise, it, it's fundamentally a real estate play, you know, yep. it's not, it's positioning itself as a, as a tech company, but, but it's by and large a, a real estate play. So. Yep, look for the, like I said, look for the Peapod. Look for, the, look for yeah. the co-working company that we don't know anything about that's probably got the mix right. Yeah. Now, when we talked a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the, uh, the potential uh, 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 reconciliation and, and, and uh, re-matrimony of, of, uh, of, uh, of um, Philip Morris and Altria. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, over the last couple of weeks, there's been uh, a, lot of, a lot of news around uh, vaping and, uh, and a lot of interference that's happened with respect to that merger. Uh, what's your perspective on that? Well, you know, again, what we talked about, right, here after, after all the litigation against tobacco industries, uh, Altria spins off Philip Morris International, thinking, of course, that they're going to go uh, internationally and, and have a much bigger market for, for, for traditional cigarettes, uh, and uh, off they go. At the same time, Altria shrinks in size, looks for the next big thing, and, of course, one of the next big things that they found uh, was Juul. They come back together again because the promise of the international growth wasn't there. The promise of Altria's growth was not yet there, and they were going to come together, uh, and that was going to be the answer. Now, again, the, the, the nail in the proverbial coffin was, was Juul. Um, uh, where it looked like it might be the future, it's proven to be uh, very possibly uh, as much of, a, of a, much of a, a risk as original tobacco was. Uh, this is no time to be trying to pull together these two companies. This is an all-hands-on-deck for Altria as they now take their management team and replace the entire management team at Juul in an, in an effort to, to kind of save the quote-unquote crown jewel of their future. Uh, I, I, the, notion of, the notion of taking on an international merger at this point just doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. So let's uh, let's transition from uh, from one vice to, to another, albeit uh, probably not as uh, not as bad a vice as smoking, but uh, sugar, sweets, uh, Oreo cookie, uh, which I didn't even realize is the world's top selling cookie. Uh, they they are, uh, as I understand it, looking to become the world's cookie. Uh, what's your perspective on on Oreo? You know, this this one actually caught me uh, 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 off guard. I did not realize uh, that this 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 little biscuit, as they were called in those days, uh, that was uh, that was uh, launched by a company called Nabisco, National Biscuit Company, in 1912, has gone on to become a best-selling uh, uh, cookie. Uh, into really 70% of this, uh, the 100 uh, con- countries they're in, 75% of their sales come from two of those countries, the United States and China. And what's so interesting about it is twofold. One is the actual cookie itself, the biscuit itself. Because the way it's constructed, these two wafers with the fillings, you're able to, to kind of modify the fillings for the tastes of the various countries they're in. So what they find is, depending on what kind of countries they're in, they can, they can put a, a ginger flavor in the middle. They can put a, a tea flavor in the middle. They can put a, a, a variety of different flavors in the middle. And they can also adapt the biscuit depending on the particular tastes of the countries. It makes it a highly highly adaptable uh, cookie and it, it and it very well may be become the world's uh, most famous cookie because of that what's also though kind of interesting uh, you know I think about, uh, just about, about the, the Oreo in general, is that it's related it, it, to people's memories. You, you know, it's an interactive cookie. Um, <laughs> even when they've launched it in various countries, they've launched it around the, the twist, lick, dunk. That was the British launch. The, the fact is, in people's memories, and they're banking on this, that they will raise generations of, in each one of the countries they go to, they will raise generations of users who know how to interact with this very interesting uh, biscuit, or as we call it, cookie. So there's two things going on there. There's memories and generational sales, and then there's the, the ability to, to make it highly tailorable and leveraged in those various countries. Yeah. 
I'll never look at an Oreo again. I now see it as the ultimate. I now see it as the ultimate delivery vehicle. Uh, you can hey, put whatever you want in the middle. I tell you what, Jewel, Jewel could learn from that, right? Yeah, exactly. I was just thinking the same thing. Maybe they should be talking to Altria right now. Um, exactly. Although I, I guess the ultimate win by Oreo would be if a couple generations from now they essentially take over uh, the definition of what a cookie is, right? And our, our grandchildren or great grandchildren just call any cookie an Oreo, and they. They just completely make it ubiquitous and take over the category as, as other brands have been able to do. Well, you, you, you point out one interesting thing. There is, there is absolutely no evidence of where the name came from. Uh, yeah. They think it might have reflect the French name for gold. It might uh, reflect a, a number of different things. There, there's even some Latin orientation to it. But frankly, uh, typically where that time frame in which it was evolved, you came up with a name like that because it was trademarkable and it, yeah. you couldn't imitate it. You, you couldn't imitate, and that's why the design on the biscuit itself and the name is probably, it was invented to be trademarked. Yeah. Well, and it still works out well for them because it uh, certainly still has good search equity. Uh, so let's, uh, let's move from, from cookies to apples, uh, if that can work as a transition. And uh, that would be uh, the, the new CEO of Wells Fargo uh, made some news over the last couple of weeks. He starts later in the month. Uh, but um, uh, the news is that uh, Charlie Scharf will be uh, taking over Wells Fargo and will be running, uh, will be running the stagecoach from New York rather than the company's headquarters in San Francisco. What yeah. do you make of that? It's such an interesting story. First of all, uh, he, had a, he had a stint before he went to Bank of uh, New York Mellon uh, running Visa. And, of course, mm -hmm. Visa was Bank AmeriCard. And he ran it in San Francisco, and he, he, got, he, he spent some time there and said, look, you know, I got out of San Francisco, I got back to New York, and I'm not going back there. I'm going to run it from here. Um, it's more interesting to, in my, my mindset to think of those two names, Wells Fargo and Bank of America, they were so uh, linked to San Francisco and Western history. Uh, Wells Fargo is linked to the gold rush. I mean, it, 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 they, that, that's where those, those wagons, they would haul gold. They, they were also linked to, to, to a type of traveler's check a currency, very much like Thomas Cook. Uh, you always thought of them as so connected uh, to San Francisco, but in reality, no longer. It's no you don't you don't have to be a San Francisco institution. That's basically a global name. Bank of America is the exact same thing. They're so linked to the to kind of the immigrant experience of the of the early part of the 20th century. A. P. Giannini starts a bank for the common immigrants who come to California. That that second wave after the after the gold rush and primarily Italian immigrants who 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 had no place to save and no place to bank and he and he forms. A, 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 this bank, the Bank of America, to serve them. And, of course, it's no longer in San Francisco. Bank of America is in Charlotte, North Carolina, which has, by the way, also become kind of another East Coast money center as the money centers shift from New York south. It's become a money center as it's moved from Boston to New York to Charlotte. So to me, it's just kind of an interesting story about the shift in demographics, uh, the shift in, 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 in technologies, and just the shift in uh, global finance is no longer is no longer so closely related to a single city. Yeah, yeah, indeed. I mean, uh, Wells Fargo. You know, you always thought of it as kind of the banking brand of the West, but uh, you know, their largest uh, their consumer operations is based out of Charlotte. Uh, I assume because that's predicated on their acquisition of Wachovia years ago, which of course you know made the made the bank so much bigger on the on the East Coast. Yep. And by the way, all these disruptions, whether they were disruptions by gold rushes or disruptions of immigrant movements or even disruptions of financial disruptions, which, of course, cause consolidations, which, of course, cause relocations and dislocations. These two brands have been really and truly uh, reflective of that. But you want to know something? Once again, not unlike Thomas Cook. And not unlike, you know, if you take a look at Wells Fargo, my goodness, there's a brand that was, that was like on its back because the behavior of its, uh, uh, of its uh, uh, employees, of a, of, a, of a small number of employees, but, but, but its strategies almost put that brand under. But you want to know something? It's still an extremely powerful brand. 
Yeah. Yeah, and from a, of course as historians we were struck by their uh branding strategy last year when they came out with the campaign of founded in 1852, refounded in 2018. Uh and it looks like uh some of that positioning has already gone by the wayside, but what was your thoughts on that um on that that branding effort? It was it was a good a re is a good temporal short uh, if you still have to be in the marketplace without people pointing at you and saying, you know, you, you're you're a bad player, it was a it was a it was a it was a definite wonderful transitional play. You notice it's dropped off again, and they're back to Wells Fargo. Yeah, yeah. Cool. All right. Well, let's leave it there, Bruce. Thanks as always for your insights, and uh, we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Jason, I look forward to talking with you soon. Enjoy enjoy the autumn. Okay, so that's our show this week. And before we sign off, let's come back to our mystery company. So 15 years ago, Yelp was founded. I was honestly surprised to hear that Yelp was 15. Uh, I think most of us probably, when we think about Yelp, we really associate it with the app. Uh, but Yelp was actually started uh, back in uh, 2004 by former PayPal employees and initially began as uh, uh, envisioned as an email referral system. Uh, so it's interesting to, to learn a little bit about the evolution of, of the business model. Uh, but of course, uh, Yelp really took off in the smartphone era. And as of uh, the end of 2018, over 171 million reviews, second only to Google in number of shoppers who visit uh, them before visiting a business. So uh, happy 15th anniversary uh, to Yelp. Uh, so that's our show. Uh, thanks for listening. I'm Jason Dressel, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>